just in case you were confused. God is not afraid of the dark. It seems silly to say that, doesn't it? God is not afraid of the dark. Well, of course God's not afraid of the dark. But if that would just settle in a little bit, it would actually take care of a lot of stuff. It would relieve us of a lot of issues. It would take care of a lot of problems. If I would just get it into my head that God is not afraid of the dark and I belong to him. What we've been seeing already in the book of 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is a letter written to exiles telling them how to live well as exiles, excellence in exile, if I may, that, that um, we, we see in 1 Peter how it is that we can live even if we don't quite fit, even if we don't quite belong. And the problem with not belonging is there will be occasions when other people will make you feel like you don't belong. There will be things that come along. There will be troubles that come among you. Some of that is because of others' animosity or, or, or ill feeling toward you. Some of it is just the consequences of the fall, the troubles that are in this life. But stuff comes upon you. And the problem with the stuff is you never know. A lot of it you don't see coming. You can get blindsided. You didn't, never expected this to happen. You never expected it to be like that. And yet there it is. All of a sudden, out, seemingly out of nowhere, but it wasn't out of nowhere. It came from somewhere. And you know what else? God saw it coming. I don't care if it was day. I don't care if it was night. I don't care if it was bright. I don't care if it was dark. God sees in the dark. God knows. And if God is not afraid of the dark, we don't need to be afraid of the dark because we fear him. We have seen so far that, that Peter starts right off reminding this group of people, reminding these Christians that we have something in common with, reminding them of their essential identity in Christ, that they are elect exiles. I said they are chosen outsiders. They're chosen outsiders who are scattered abroad. They are sprinkled here and there. It's, it's as if they're sown as seed with the intention of seed to be fruitful. They are chosen outsiders dispersed among rather than separated from. Now you wish maybe it was different. You wish maybe with some of the people that give you trouble, you wished you were separated from, you were protected from, and rather you've been dispersed among them. You've been set right in the midst of them, these lousy troublemakers, in a place where the gospel has been known and yet opposed. Their present circumstances that Peter is going to be speaking to, their present circumstance as chosen outsiders dispersed is directed by God. It, God has directed this. God has known this. It is through the Spirit's active working in the midst of this being scattered for the purpose of saving faith and effectual, working, making a difference gospel service. Let me read our text for this morning. Actually, start back. I'll read what, where we were, and I'll read where we've been, because it's only two verses. 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling of his blood. 
That's where we're going to be today. There's three phrases I want us to consider today. Three phrases that'll, that, that are, are going to be sort of um, backstops for us or, or uh, things that we can lean on. Uh, assurance or security in the midst of many things we don't know and don't understand. There's certain things that we can know and be assured of and lean on. And, and Peter in this letter is going to be addressing problems. He's going to be addressing trouble. He He's not just speaking to those that are having some routine difficulties of life. He's talking about those who, because they have believed in Christ, the rug's been pulled out from under them. Everything that they've known has been taken away. They've been deprived of. In fact, some of these who he's writing of as exiles are now exiles in this area of Asia Minor because they were expelled from Rome simply because they were Christians. One of the emperors said, no more of you Jews or Christians can live in Rome. And they were forced out for a time. And they were scattered to other places. They are scattered, some of them in these places far away. It dates all the way back to their families were scattered there in the exiles of the Old Testament time. So for hundreds of years, they've been outside of the land and outside of where hope was supposed to be. And the promise, the fulfillment, the peace, the shalom of living as God's people in God's place under God's blessing. And they've been waiting for that. And yet they're God's people, but they're living among another people. And they are outsiders. And they are often despised. And we've seen, even in our generations, we've seen what that ends up looking like. And the persecution that comes, for example, on Jewish people through history, but also the persecution that comes among Christians through history. And it seems to go in waves, and we're seeing in certain parts of the world a renewed um, cresting of that wave of often brutal persecution simply for naming the name of Christ. Those are the kind of situations and people paying costs, whether large or small, that Peter is writing to. And he starts off with some things that they need to know and be assured of. And the first of those is that you are chosen exiles by the foreknowing of God. God has known it. And that doesn't merely mean that God is aware of it, that God perceived, that God could look ahead in time and see that that would happen. No, God's foreknowledge is, is actually more active than that. He says of his people Israel, you alone have I known out of all the peoples of the earth. That known means a whole lot more than just I was aware of you because God knows the other people too. God knew you people. You're not even Jewish. You're not part of Israel, and yet God knew you too. But as a unique national people, God knew them. And it, it speaks to his calling them out. It speaks to his building them up. It speaks to him setting them apart and doing something unique with them on the world stage. And I want you to pack all of that into this idea that God knows. I can say it this way. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing in the sense that it's not merely God is aware of what's out there. God knows what he's doing with all this that is going on. That's how we should understand foreknowledge. As Jesus said to a man named Nathaniel, before Philip called you, we, when you were under the fig tree, I knew you or I saw you. Don't limit foreknowledge to nothing more than God knowing who would believe. It's God working in the midst of history. You were chosen outcast, 
according to the foreknowledge of God, of our, of God the Father. Now that is certainly God the Father in the Trinity, because as we go on, we're going to be introduced to the Spirit. We're going to be introduced to redemption in the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son in, in, in one compact verse are all involved. All of the triune Godhead is involved in your redemption, in your eternal life. God is wholly involved in this work that he's doing. Father, Son, and Spirit, God is wholly involved in what he is doing in us and through us in this present hour. So is God the Father of Jesus, the Son, and also God the Father of you who believe. The Father of, of we whom he has caused in verse 3. Let me remind you of verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again as his children. He's the Father of Jesus, and he's the Father of those that he has caused to be born again. God is your Father. And us fathers like to think that we know. We like to think that we have, we've been further down the trail and we have the answers, but uh, we have to admit, don't we? We don't know. In fact, we don't even know what we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know that we don't even know that we don't know. There's some things that we know, but the things that we know are actually probably a little bit. Now, we still get into conflict with our children no matter what age they are because the little bit that we know, guess what? It's a few more years than what they know. And yet we don't even know how to impart that from there to there. But God knows. You have a father who is perfect. You have a father who knows not only the circumstances, but a father who knows you. He's the Lord of creation, and he's the Father who loves you. He's the Father who is not surprised by the present circumstances. The thing that you were surprised about, God is not surprised about. Isn't that good news? I don't know what to do, but it's okay. God does know what to do. God is already doing what to do. God has been doing what to do for a long time now. God knows in the midst of the stuff that gets us rattled, if we could only remember this, God knows you and God knows your circumstances. He has not been surprised at this. I don't say he's not outraged. Sometimes we can get so relaxed about what's going on because, oh, well, God knows it all. God's not surprised. Well, yeah, he might not be surprised, but he might be outraged. And there are some things we don't want to panic, but we might be outraged as well. So don't get those confused. There are, there's plenty going on today that God is outraged about. But he was never surprised. It never caught him off guard. It never pushed him to result to plan B or to sit there on the couch and get out his smartphone like I did. I don't know what to do now on this situation and start Googling, looking for ideas. God doesn't do that. I don't think he even has a smartphone. I wish I didn't. In the midst of this, in the midst of all that God knows, he is working. He is working out his redemption. In fact, God even uses the rebellion of humanity, which does not surprise him, though it outrages him, and yet God is using that to accomplish his plan of redemption, his redemptive purposes. God knows you, and God knows your circumstance. God knows your suffering. Let's unpack this a little bit. God knows it experientially. Jesus was born and lived 
and died. I don't know what you're going through. There are some of you that are going through the loss of a loved one. You're going through a process of grief, and you won't get over it, but you will process through that grief experience, that loss, that hopefully temporary separation. I know the family of the man that I told you about just a couple of weeks ago, a man named Larry, that, um, you know, they are grieving his loss. We will, we will um, have a service together around his grave on Tuesday. He went home to be with his Lord and Savior, the one who said that he would enter into his presence because Jesus died for his sins. Yeah, and yet his, his family is grieving. They miss him. Jesus knows what it is to lose a loved one. Remember how he wept alongside the tomb of Lazarus. Maybe you're mistreated. Maybe people will mistreat, will ridicule you, will not give you the respect that you, you ought to have. They'll belittle you. Our Lord knows about what it is for people to doubt him, to not respect him. What about the people that you work with? Maybe, maybe the work environment among your peers, people that work with you, people that you work for, people that work under you. Maybe they're the ones that give you grief. Say, oh, Lord, would you deliver me from these people? It's hard to soar with the eagles while you're working with the turkeys. What do I do? One of the Lord's hand-picked embezzled from him. The others all promised, but when crunch time came, they did not deliver. They abandoned him. He knows what it is to be let down by the weakness of others and yet to continue loving them anyway. Maybe your trouble is you're a parent of small children. I can empathize with that. I won't help you much, but I'll empathize with you. <laughs> no, seriously, as a church family, we, we, we must gather together, right? We want to help one another as family. And yet, in the, in the midst of your frustration, at that normal human level of frustration, God knows about that too. And let me tell you what, God knows what it is to have obstinate two-year-olds who have a tantrum in the middle of the market and shake their fist and demand their own way. Don't, God knows that, doesn't he? God knows what that's like because he's experienced it with us. When we toss our toys out of the crib, when we insist on our way instead of his ways, and yet God faithfully loves and directs and disciplines his children. You might have financial trouble. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Some of you, your daily experience is one of physical pain. It's one of the facts of growing old. For some of you, it came much younger. Our God even knows that. Our Lord Jesus knows what it is to suffer in the weakness and the mortality, pain and trouble in this weak flesh. God knows your circumstance, God knows your situation. Chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In what, in what situation? In what circumstance? I want you to pause right now and I want you to think. I want you to set this apart. I want you to lay it down. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a pen or pencil. Maybe you write things down. I want you to pause and, and get it clear here or write it down there. What is a thing? 
What is a place, trouble that you're in, an unexpected difficulty, you don't know what to do, you didn't see this coming, you don't know how you're going to manage, what is one thing where you need to know God knows and that you can rest in that thing? You can rest, you can take that thing and you can lay it before the God of the universe who is your father and you can say, God, you know this. I'm going to trust you with it. Take that thing. Trust the true and the living God, the God who knows you, the God who knows your circumstances. The God who, because he knows you and knows your circumstances, is actively working by the sanctification of the Spirit. In or by means of, through the agency of, how is God working that which he knows and has determined? How is God working it? Through the means of or the agency of. Agency is the correct term because the, the, the Spirit is a person, not a force. Through the agent working of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit. What does sanctification mean? Oh, sanctification is that process by we're made more like Christ. It's the transforming work in life, right? Kind of. That's a theological category we use. We talk about we are justified. We are forgiven of our sins. Justification. Quick, short, brief theology lesson here. Justification happens when I believe in Christ. My sins are forgiven. I am given a righteousness that is Jesus' righteousness. It is imputed to me. It's put upon me. I am now right in standing before God. That's justification. It's a one-time event. Happens when I believe. Sanctification continues as a process whereby God works his holiness into my life by the Spirit. I live by means of the Spirit living through me. The fruit of the Spirit is produced. It's, I'm an imperfect work. I'm still a work in progress. You know that. And that's a continuing. That's sanctification. And we look toward glorification. We look for that future event when we will see him. And we will be like him for we will see him as he is. When these miserable, wretched, mortal, corrupt bodies will be transformed and be like his glorious body. And we will be fit for eternity. We will be fit and suitable for heaven. Which these bodies just won't, just won't hold up. These bodies are like cheap shoes on a rough trail. And yet they will be changed. They will be transformed. So... Justification, sanctification, glorification. Told you all that to, think of, to say that I want you to think of sanctification in a different way also. I want you to think of sanctification as setting apart. The setting apart work of the Spirit. And that which by God is making us new is God is setting apart for new work. Okay? Keep those two together. God is setting us apart for new work. My best, my favorite example, and you've heard this before. Some of you are just going to have to yawn through this. You've heard this before. My favorite example of sanctification is my what? My toothbrush, exactly. You can come over to my house. I know there's at least one person in the room that hasn't heard this yet. So you can come over to my house and we'll share lots of things. You know, the things that we forgot to put away so they're out there and you notice them, we'll share those things. We'll share lots of things with you, but the one thing I don't want you to use is my toothbrush. I don't want you to brush your teeth with it. I know that's what toothbrushes are for, but that brush is for my teeth. I don't want you to do anything else with it. I don't want you to clean those hard-to-reach places in the corner. I don't want you to scrub the grout in the shower. I don't want you to do anything else with my toothbrush. And certainly, please, don't use it to reach underneath the toilet rim bowl. You know, it's just not, this is, no. Why? Because it's my toothbrush. Toothbrush tells you it's set apart for a certain kind of use. My toothbrush tells you it's set apart for a certain kind of my use. 
It's sanctified. It's set apart for a particular thing. Now, that's a really fun example. The other example, something that is sanctified or made holy or unique are the articles that are in the temple. Now, the priest wouldn't borrow them on Friday afternoon. Oh, it's Sabbath. No one's going to be using this tomorrow. I'll just take it home. I'll use the same pan that I use for, for the offerings um, to be roasted on the altar during the week. I'm going to take that pan home, and we got our roast beef cooked up in that pan over the weekend. The priest didn't do that. These were not common things. These were not everyday articles. These were sanctified, set apart for special use. And that's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is taking you as common and everyday and people of the world that we were. And he is taking us and setting us apart and hemming us in and pushing us forward and leading us on into his working. So that... Ephesians 2, building on our being saved by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, chapter 10, gives us a, a truth that is the theme verse of our men's ministry in the summer, the summer of service. It says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained or set apart or laid out that we would walk in them. The work of the Spirit in the midst of his church today is setting us apart, doing his work in us that he would also do his work through us. And his work in us and through us is according to his foreknowing by which he is his calling others to himself and carrying out this work of chosen outcasts who are dispersed but not haphazardly, who are dispersed by divine appointment for his work in the midst of this wide world. That's what God is doing. The sanctifying, the setting apart, God has chosen you for what? Every one of you for something. God has chosen every one of you who believe in Christ as your Savior. You have been set apart to faith in Christ and are set apart for what God would use you for in his body. I was thinking about earlier and how we have different uses in the body. I was, I was, I was, I was in the back room after changing and I heard, heard Pastor Evan talking, explaining about clapping. And he says crazy things like, if you want to clap, put your hands together on the, on, the, on, the, on the second beat and the fourth beat or something like that. I don't even know what he's talking about. But I do know this. Whenever I clap in church, I get it wrong by myself. I get it wrong. I don't know why. I can do lots of things, but I can't clap at all. I, I don't know why. White boy ain't got no rhythm. I don't know, but I can't clap. But we have somebody that can lead us in clapping. And once other people will clap and get it right, then I, I, I can stick with it. I can watch that. And I get enough verbal cues that I can keep myself together. And I can clap too. In the body of Christ, clapping is a silly example of that. But in the body of Christ, we are fitted differently for different work. And yet the Spirit has set us here and there and there and there and there. The Spirit has set us apart for His working and His work. So just as I ask you, God knows you and God knows your circumstance, so what is the situation or circumstance in which you must trust Him? Now I'm going to ask you this. If the Spirit has set you apart for His working, what is that thing? What is that ministry? How might God use you? Uniquely, somewhat differently, maybe along the same kind of way, but how would God use you in the midst of his work by his spirit in the world? 
What is your God-ordained ministry? What are those good works that God has before ordained for you to walk in? That's not merely a rhetorical question. I want you to chew on that just for a moment. What is it that God's given you to do? There are some works of creativity that it's obvious to me. What are some of the things that God has given some of us to do? How about you? What is it? I do not want a handful of people in this church to be the ones that are immersed and carrying the weight of everything that's going on. I don't want us to have so many ministries that we're saddled with all the different kinds of things and programs and projects and all the stuff we could do. If only we could drag people into it. I do want, for the sake of the Spirit's work in you, I want every one of us to know that we have a place, that this is where we serve together with others in the body of Christ for the good of somebody else, not ourselves. There's much that we do that we need to do to serve ourselves in the midst of life and those that, we, those that are close to us. But the church as family, we serve the rest of the family. There's our household chores, so to speak. And also we do things we serve for the sake of the people that aren't even here. Maybe not even here yet. But what is it that you have been given by God to do? That maybe you're saying, I don't know, I could. Yeah, you probably can't. You probably can't do it. But would the Spirit do that through you? If he has ordained it, he will stretch you. He will drag you kicking and screaming into it. And you will find the fulfillment of the Lord's joy right there. And that very thing you were hesitant about, you were afraid about, you said, I don't know, will be where you know him. Because you're right in the midst of where he would have you to be. Because God is working according to his knowledge by the setting apart of his spirit to bring about this. The spirit calls us into faith in Christ. You are called to believe in Jesus and live in Jesus. Let me review those three phrases. Chosen, outcast, according to the foreknowledge of God, God knows. In the sanctification, the setting apart work of the Spirit, God has set you apart for his work in the world. For, and here's the goal, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know I read that differently than some of your Bibles. We have that on a slide. Unto be obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sorry, I left the blood off. Please don't make me a heretic. Um, the, the, we, we get confused on, some of, on how that verse is laid out and it's translated a few different ways, but there's, there's, a, there's some grammar stuff that I'm just not going to go into. But obedience and sprinkling are actually what's... what's um, it, it's a figure of speech where the two things are referring to the same thing. Okay, It's like when you say pastor and teacher. The two words are, are referring to the same thing in the same person. The, the, uh, the, the obedience and sprinkling are a couple of different aspects of a whole package of what it is to belong to Jesus Christ. Obedience, I think, refers not so much to following and obeying Jesus in the Christian life as it does to faith. Paul opened his book of Romans and closed it with this phrase, to bring about the obedience to faith among all nations for his namesake. To bring about the obedience of faith is to answer the call of God to believe. 
Obedience here, I think, as it's joined with the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, it, it refers to that believing, receiving the forgiveness. It, it, it refers to what we share and celebrate at this table together, that we have entered into a new covenant relationship with God. The sprinkling, that's a weird term, isn't it? In the church today, we typically don't sprinkle anything. I mean, we're Baptists. We don't sprinkle, we dunk, right? But the sprinkling, the sprinkling of the blood is a covenant image. It's a covenant picture. It reaches all the way back to Exodus 24 when, when the, the people were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice that established that covenant um, that, that, was, that was led by Moses between this people and God there on the mountain. And that was a covenant that they, they needed to keep. They needed to obey. If they did this, then God would do that. But if they did this, then God instead is going to do this. And God said there would come a day when he would establish a new covenant. Not because there was anything wrong with the law. The raw law is holy and righteous and good, but we couldn't keep it. And so God would establish a new covenant where we would be, in fact, I'm going to turn over there. Ezekiel 24 refers to this sprinkling in terms of the new covenant. Ezekiel 24. No, it's not. It's Ezekiel 36, sorry. Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. If you want to follow along with me here, or perhaps you just want to jot that note down as a cross-reference, you can go back and look at it later. Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. Just I want to tie this sprinkling and obedience of faith together as one new covenant package. I will take you from the nations, verse 24, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey me. There's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit that we already talked about. And the goal, the sanctifying goal of the Holy Spirit, God has set people apart. We talked last week about God's choosing and how that actually gives confidence in sharing the gospel. I was talking with somebody this morning that the fact that God is at work, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that gives you confidence. You can share your faith with a person that, the, especially as you pray and God puts somebody on your heart and you pray for them. And along the way, you speak to them. And if God is leading you to pray for them, and if God is leading you to speak for them, God is also the sanctifying work of the Spirit has set them apart toward the gospel. God is leading them and you to an eternal moment, perhaps. Or you might be planting, you might be watering. We don't know where God will give the increase of that faith. And yet, God is using you in the midst of setting somebody apart for the gospel because that's what he has determined to do. And you are right in the middle of God's moment in the middle of history. Imagine it. God knows and is working by his spirit in you and I to bring about the entrance into the new covenant of others yet who don't yet believe. That's his goal. That's where he's going. Sprinkling in Jesus' blood is not merely the idea of forgiveness, but entrance into the new covenant. That new covenant entrance that also cleanses our conscience to be able to serve the true and the living God. This is a sprinkling of blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel condemned. This sprinkling forgives. 
The blood of Abel separated Cain from God's presence. The blood of Jesus invites us into the presence of God and to participate in his work. The cleansing of forgiveness frees us to serve without shame or guilt or obligation. Peter is explicit that salvation is meant to free us, free us to live in the ways that God created us to live. We have been made secure to live free in a new covenant relationship with God. And I want to ask you this, and I put this on your notes as well. All three of these questions I put on your notes because I didn't want you to get away without them. What does the cross free you from? that you need to let go of. Peter is very clear. Verse 18, if, if we were to jump ahead there, let's jump ahead to verse 18 of 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed from those futile things. What is it that the cross has set you free from that you need to, in faith, then in God's working, you need to let go of? What is it? There is something still lingering in your life. It pops up here. It shows up there. This is the thing you need to let go of. This is the thing you need to say, the cross frees me from that. That sin, that temptation has no claim on me any longer. The temptation still may come, but I don't have to give in to it. I was driving in this morning, and I heard a funny illustration of that on the radio. It said that the, man, the hotel manager cannot control who comes in the lobby, but he doesn't have to give him a room. Okay? You cannot control what might enter into the lobby of your mind, but you don't have to give it a room in your thoughts in your imaginations, in your what would it be likes, or in your actions. You can't control what comes in the lobby, but you don't have to give it room. What is it that the cross gives you the freedom to say, out the door, you don't belong here anymore? What does the cross free you from that you need to let go of and be the different that God has made you to be? And what does your new covenant relationship with God in Christ by the Spirit free you to do that you could never do before? Free you to be that you never were before. To be transformed by the changing, transforming work of a new covenant relationship with God. That's what we're celebrating at this table. And it's time to move there now. You know, as, as uh, we close this section, Peter says, in view of this, that God knows, and God is doing his setting apart work by the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. God is, God knows all that's going on. In fact, he is using what's going on by his Spirit to make us participants in and with him in his grandest work of redemption in Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace is God's, all of God's free gift and his enabling that comes along with it, and peace. And that peace goes two ways. As we approach this table, I wanted us to think of this. That peace goes two ways. That peace is a peace that is peace with God that comes through faith in Jesus, who forgives our sins. And it's a peace of God that guards our hearts and minds from anxiety when we trust him. As we come to this table, I want you to pursue peace in two directions. 
I want you to pursue peace with God. There may be something that you gave a room to. There may be something that the Spirit provokes and reminds you again of this morning, that this is something you just need to draw the line on and say, I trust this to Jesus' blood. Jesus died for me for this. I will let it go. I will not let the guilt of it shame me any longer. I will accept peace with God because Jesus died for me even in that. There's something else that you're anxious about. And I encourage you around this table to pursue peace with God and to pursue the peace of God that will guard your mind because you trust the one who knows everything and whose fatherly arms are wrapped around you. Let's pray. As those who are serving come forward, as the members of the worship team come forward, we're going to, we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate this table together. But as they come forward, the rest of us, I want to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pursue peace. Father, we come to this table. Those who will share of these elements as they're passed to and fro, they share of them because they have believed in Jesus as their Savior. And as we participate again personally, as your church has done over thousands of years, Father, we, we confess again our belief that Jesus died for our sin, his body, his blood given for us. And because of that, we not only have peace with you, but Father, this, your greatest act of love toward us, reminds us that there's nothing we need be anxious about. Lord, within our body this morning, those that are troubled by any guilt, would they put that under the blood of Jesus Christ and accept forgiveness there? Father, for those that are troubled by any anxious thought, would this greatest demonstration of your love, would this settle it for them? That they would rest in the fact that you know and you've got them. We ask it in Jesus.